is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same, or maybe you long to. <sighs> On this week's episode of the podcast, we have such wonderful folk music by Carla Siaki. Um, we will be hearing three songs. Uh, the first one you heard in the intro is called Sheep Shearing. Later on, You'll hear the band of shearers, and at the end, the weaver and the chambermaid. All three of these are are on her album called Spin the Weaver's Song. You can find links for that in the show notes. And all these songs, uh, the lyrics of which seem to have been pulled from uh, some research into the archives of English and Scottish folklore. So really, really cool. And all of that absolutely ties in with today's podcast guest, who is Mary-Kate Clater. Mary-Kate is the Associate Director of Interpretation at the Frontier Culture Museum. Um, She is an educator there at the museum. Sometimes she's dressed in period clothing, doing living history demonstrations like with shearing. And at other times, she is a helping hand on the museum's farm. 
but she has a ton of hobbies, some of which we'll get into on this podcast. And the real focus for today is sheep shearing and wool production. So if you're interested in checking out some images of uh, some of the things we talk about on today's episode, then follow Mary Kate on her Instagram account at underscore Mary Kate makes underscore. You can also check out the Frontier Culture Museum who have an Instagram account and they also have a YouTube channel and of course their website, all of which have got some pretty fascinating historical information on it. While I don't personally have really any experience with livestock yet, my focus in moving to the country for the past six and a half years, my focus was first hunting and then trapping. And then now we've grown corn and some vegetables last year. We were, we were just starting to put in the veggies for this year's garden. I, I haven't quite moved up into livestock yet. So I don't really have much experience with livestock at all. And yet I found wool a fascinating topic for multiple reasons that I share with Mary-Kate. And it's just fascinating to remember that before the invention of plastic and synthetics that so much of what we needed as humans, we've just relied so hard on uh, animals, plants and animals for everything, whether it's food, whether it's uh, shelter, whether it's uh, warm clothing, it's just quite extraordinary. And so I thought this one would be a cool uh, first, maybe first episode on some of the topics that are um, explored at the Frontier Culture Museum. I hope to do a few more with some of the folks that work there, maybe one on blacksmithing history. I would love to get into that. And I would love to do one solely on what a woman's life would be like living on in the early, in the colonial frontier. And so in the 1700s, America, uh, on the border of Appalachia, what was uh, a woman's life like? Because that's not something I normally hear so much about when I look into history, but I still find it quite fascinating. And much of the uh, what we get into today certainly relates to that. Um, and when it comes to, uh, well, we don't get into it on the episode, when it comes to making thread and weaving and clothing, there is definitely something archetypically mythologic about it. I mean, there are so many stories in mythology and in fairy tales of weaving. And uh, yeah, there's something, there's something about it. I'm not qu quite sure what it is, but there's something quite mysterious about it. One thing that escaped me that I couldn't find the word for while doing the podcast was we were talking about traditional dyeing, fabric dyeing, and Mary-Kate brought up the cochineal insects, which are these little bugs that are ground up to make a red dye. And what came to mind were uh, back in my drinking days, one of my favorite um, flavorsome, uh, flavor explosion of a drink was the Italian cocktail, the Negroni. And... Um, I, there's a red liqueur that goes into a Negroni and I could not think of it during the interview, what the name of it was. And that is called Campari. And it turns out that indeed, up until the 2000s, Campari was made with, uh, was made red. It's a bright like ruby red with these ground up bugs, the cochineal insects. So I just thought that was a really cool thing that I wanted to uh, make sure to get in on the intro. 
So before today's reading, I'd like to say thank you to everyone on Patreon. I've got a handful of new people that have joined on since the last two episodes about uh, coal mining. Um, I'd like to say a big thank you to Andrew Riddell, uh, Waddle and Dobb Historical Craftsman, uh, my friend Alex Kurashev, who is training, um, who trains Russian hunting dogs, uh, Brandon Day, and uh, and those are the new folks. So thank you, thank you very, very much. And for everyone at the highest tier, I want to thank, say a big thanks to Jess Paget, uh, Kendall Wine, Ash Barron, Ra- uh, Rachel Hawkshaw of Topsy Farms, On Stanley, Dan- Diana Gonzalez. Earl Suter, Franklin Renshaw, Heron O'Brien, Jamie Nudd, and Jamie, we talk about you on the podcast because you uh, invited me to the hog slaughter, Uh, James Mann, Jeff, Kenneth Giles, Leslie Peterson-Cohen, Michelle Alderson, Nathan Griffin, the Houndsman, uh, Ryan Arnold, Rambler, Ryan Goechner, Sophie McVicker, Steve Childs, Tristan Harper, Tyler Lively, uh, and the working class woodsmen and everyone at the lower tiers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This really helps. Um, and I've got a lot of ideas for future episodes. So today's reading comes from Folklore of Sussex. That is, of course, a county in England, and it is written by Jacqueline Simpson. So the excerpt that I will be reading is about the historical sheep shearing gangs. And we will begin with a song on the same topic. When summer days and heather bells come reeking o'er yon highland hills, there's yellow corn in yonder fields, and the autumn brings a shearing. Singing bonnie lassie Cheer us as we gang when we join the band of shears. And if the thistle it be strong, that it would hurt your milk white hand, it's with my hook I'll cut it down when we join the band of shears. June. In this month, there used to occur one of those major events of the farming year, which, while they entailed a great deal of strenuous work, also gave an excuse for drinking and merrymaking. In this case, the annual sheep shearing. Until well into the 20th century, the Downland farms were celebrated for their huge flocks of South Down sheep, the shearing of which required far more labor than an individual farm could provide. Consequently, men who were nimble with their hands, often including town dwellers such as tailors and cobblers, not merely shepherds and farm workers, used to form themselves into a shearing gang and tour a district, visiting several farms in turn. The leader of each gang or crew was styled captain, 
and wore some distinguishing mark in his hat, such as a gold band or a couple of gold stars, while his second-in-command, the lieutenant, wore, as his lesser mark, a silver band or a single star. A typical gang would contain some dozen or score of actual shearers, an older man to stack the fleeces, and a young tar boy whose job it was to dress the wound of any sheep that got cut with tar or powdered lime, and to fetch and carry for the men. The season would start with a gathering at a pub called White Ram Night, in the course of which the captain would explain to his crew the itinerary he had agreed on with the farmers, the contracts he had drawn up on their behalf, and the rules that they were to work by, including a list of agreed fines for various faults such as swearing, leaving tufts unshorn, or letting a sheep wriggle out of one's grasp. The shearing season would last three or four weeks, during which time anything up to 10,000 sheep might be dealt with. The work was very hard, though it was often enlivened with evenings of drinking, singing, and horseplay among the shearers, who would take up their quarters in the farmer's barn. When the circuit was complete, the men repaired once more to a pub for the final and far livelier Black Ram Night, at which the captain would preside over the final share-out of wages, also the paying of fines. The latter would form a fund to pay for the evening's drinking. Needless to say, there were songs too that night. Stanton, Virginia, um, here in the Shenandoah Valley, um, currently at the local library. <laughs> yes. And this is close to where you grew up. Yes. So I am from Rockbridge County, Virginia, specifically Natural Bridge Station, which is kind of at the sort of the terminus of the Shenandoah Valley and the beginning of the Roanoke Valley. Hmm. Um, so I'm probably like where I grew up was probably about 10 minutes um, from the Botetourt County border, which beyond then you're, you're getting pretty close to Roanoke. So I've spent most of my time in that sort of area growing up. Is there a geographical difference? Yeah. So like here, I would say here in Stanton um, and especially farther north in the valley, uh, the valley is wider, right? And the mm. mountains are a little bit farther away. Like they're kind of on either side of you. But as you get closer to Natural Bridge and specifically like where I grew up, I grew up with my grandparents primarily. Um, we're maybe about a hundred yards from the James River mm. and the mountains are all very kind of close and clustered together there. So it's like you're sitting at the foot of a mountain staring up at it most of the time. Oh, having, yeah. so having moved to West Virginia, um, 
there's such an intense difference between here, the Shenandoah Valley, then as you drive west towards where we are on the West Virginia border, West Virginia, Virginia border, that, that, that um, piece of Appalachia that is Virginia and it, you know, incredible mountains, but then there'll be gaps between them. But once you start penetrating West Virginia into Kentucky, like it is almost claustrophobic. Yeah. You never see a, a landscape because you're at the bottom of all the hollers. Yeah. And just like with the houses are just right there along the road. And then you're just straight up on either side. Are, right. the, are all these super steep little mountain hollows. Yeah. And it's like, it, it probably, I wouldn't call it maybe that extreme, like mm-hmm. where I grew mm-hmm. up because, you know, it, it wasn't, there are some places certainly in the county that I would classify as a holler. Um, but most of it, you can still at least see around you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, we, uh, my partner and I went to West Virginia recently and we had that same experience where we were driving through and we're like, wow. You could definitely get lost in here. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, well, so uh, one of the reasons to have you on the podcast is because you um, work at this incredibly interesting and wonderful museum to have in the region, the Frontier Culture Museum. Mm-hmm. So you work there, right? Yes. But you're not necessarily one of the living historians. Like, what do you do there? I do a little bit of everything. Um, technically, my title is I'm the Associate Director of Interpretation. Um, so I am I work under the Director of Interpretation to basically kind of work out um, what our daily activities are, what types of interpretive things we're going to be doing, and kind of changing by season because obviously if we're talking about people in the past, it's going to be very much dictated by what you can do depending on what season it is seasonal living yeah so it's like we're focusing on agriculture um you know animal husbandry uh you know even things like uh military history like we have something coming up here just this this coming weekend for memorial day where we're talking about a particular group during the american revolution uh called crockett's western battalion Hmm. which was a group that was very active in more uh western and southwestern virginia and into uh areas of kentucky so it represents more of the kind of western theater of the american Mm. revolution uh, a part that maybe a lot of people are not as familiar with so we we highlight things that are very specific to the frontier which the frontier is a very kind of vague concept it changes depending on who you are and what time period you're looking at um but we we cover a lot of ground um as far as locations we we have a kind of what we would refer to as an old world's kind of side of the museum where we have a West African site, an English farm, uh, a Scots Irish farm and a German farm. And then uh, we have an American side of the museum representing um, indigenous peoples of uh, mostly the Eastern woodlands um, and more European settlements through the 18th century into the 19th century. So, we talk about a lot. <laughs> and, and it is an incredible, we just started visiting last year and I've already been three times. It is really an amazing museum. So mm-hmm. uh, describe it a little more. So for instance, what it's very impressive. Like sometimes the re- re- living history reenacting can get a little on the, a little corny. Right. <laughs> like the Frontier Culture Museum is super classy. Yeah. Oh, I mean, <laughs> so, they, so they brought buildings mm-hmm. from like an, an Irish forge or yeah. a German farmhouse. And then they piece by piece completely restructured, reconstructed them here 
in the in the Shenandoah Valley. Mm-hmm. So it is so beautiful. What the, t- say a little more about yeah. just how neat of a museum this is. It's it's definitely unique. Um, the museum, just to give you a little bit more context, has been around. Um, for a little over 30 years, um, we're coming up on our, I think, 35th anniversary. And when it first opened, I think there were only four sites that were sort of clustered together. And over that period of time up until now, it's expanded quite a bit. So major- the majority of the buildings that we have there are original structures that, like you were saying, were, were moved and, and put back together brick by brick, timber by timber <laughs> a lot of times. Um so just being able to kind of be in those spaces and so cool. kind of being able to absorb the history that, you know, those particular elements of those buildings have already kind of experienced in their life is, is pretty cool. It's like yeah. the different, like I wear a lot of um, vintage clothing, mm-hmm. right? So it's like the difference between like I bought back when I lived in New York, I bought like a 50s pinstripe mm-hmm. uh, suit. The difference between that and then buying like a reproduction. Right. It's like, it's the real thing. Yeah. Like someone it's, you know, people were using the forge in, in what the late 1700s in there in Ireland. And now it's here. And I think it was used up until I want to say the 1950s or sixties in, in County Fermanagh where it came from in Northern Ireland. So the fact that it was still being used for that purpose, and then we just took it back a couple hundred years is, is pretty crazy. And when I met, so your boyfriend is the, is the, um, He's what is it, like the main, right? He's like the He's main. He's like blacksmith. the head blacksmith. Head there. Blacksmith. Yeah. Uh-huh. That was what I was looking for. So when I met him, he was doing the living history in the forge. Mm-hmm. And he said when when they would bring the buildings over that they would um number mm-hmm. like each block. Yeah. So it's like a Lego, you know, a giant Lego set <laughs> that they had to reconstruct. Yes. Extraordinary. Yeah. There are some buildings like there's a there's a cattle shed that came from a slightly different location, but it's it kind of is paired with our English farm there. Um but when we're up there milking cows, it's like there are still little labels on each little piece of, of the lumber that you can see how they put it back together. <laughs> it's God, pretty cool. What an ordeal. <clears throat> Do they have any plans for any more to bring in any other buildings? I mean, it must just be such a massive undertaking. It's, I think there have been talks about it. Um, I think this has been, I think, a discussion since the museum has pretty much started. I think they they wanted to incorporate a mill at some point, mm. which is really cool. But I don't know, at least in this stage of the the development of the museum, like when something like that would happen. Mm. But it's a it's a really cool concept, at least. Like a wind one or a water one? Is like there a, a water source? Like a it would be a water powered one. But I think it'd be a thing where we'd probably have to, you know bring the water in, okay, okay. <laughs> but still be able to have a working mill would be pretty cool. So whereas, um, it seems as though your boyfriend, how he's always in period clothing, mm-hmm. you're not necessarily, you're sounds like your job is a little more administ like administration. Yeah. And, so, okay. so I'm also kind of our de facto livestock coordinator at this point too. Um, and it's just because, you know, over the years and kind of transitions of, different positions that we have there. Uh, it's kind of, it's kind of morphed into that part of my job too, but I have, I have lots of help and I'm thankful that we have a very close relationship with our veterinarian. Cause if I ever have questions, I can just ask them. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of, I help with day to day site activities, but also I sort of manage 
what sort of programming we do with our livestock and just kind of logistics sort of things too. So whether it's scheduling when we shear the sheep or, you know, making sure that we have somebody to milk our cow twice a day, like that's, that's the kind of little detail sort of things that I end up doing. <laughs> so even though it's like a period, uh, living history museum, it's still like a working farm, right? In, in some ways. Yes. Cause I mean, we still have, we have gardens at pretty much every single site and granted they're not huge, but I mean, we still want to produce, you know, crops and, and herbs and especially like, uh, field crops. We plant flax, we plant wheat, we plant rye. Um, we want to have, a good harvest so that we can actually do the activities that we would do to, to interpret the past. Mm. Cause sometimes, you know, the weather is obviously different here than say in Northern Ireland. Ah, of course. Um, so if you're planting flax and say you don't get enough rain or there's some other environmental factor that causes it to be stunted, you end up with shorter pieces of flax that might not necessarily be as good for processing to turn uh, into to linen eventually. Oh my God. So there's okay. little things like that <laughs> that you have to navigate. And and you guys do that? <clears throat> mm -hmm. Yeah, we, wow. we grow our own flax. We, we process flax. And the same thing with the wool. Like we have at this point, because we had 10 lambs born this year, we have a little over 20 sheep. Um, and every year we make a big deal. We have Wool Week uh, where we shear all of our sheep and do it as a public demonstration. We use, use hand shears to do mm. that too. So that so. I really wish I we had, when I saw, when we started talking mm -hmm. and I saw that you had organized that event. Yeah. Un unfortunately, we had another thing to do that day, but I yeah. so badly wanted to come. So we'll definitely come next we'll year. We'll do it next year, yeah. <laughs> but th this is the main topic for today's episode, yeah. at least for a good chunk of it. Right. Because... Uh, what I haven't told you, the reason I'm interested in this is uh, a little bit of a story here. But um, so my mom gave me a pocket watch like a year ago, an, a family heirloom. And she was just here this uh, this last few weekends ago for Mother's Day. And I, I got it out and I was kind of thinking like, well, which family member did this belong to? And just getting into family history. So mm -hmm. it turns out, so my mom is from Belgium. Okay. She's got an incredibly thick French accent. And um, so... My great-grandfather in Belgium, in the town of Verviers, mm -hmm. um, he was a wool manufacturer. Oh, cool. So he had a small um, factory with like a few dozen employees. And uh, I guess they processed wool and they made the, the actual textiles, whatever mm -hmm. they made. And then they would sit. So, uh, and, and the woman he married was also from a wool manufacturing family. So my great-grandfather and my great-grandmother. So uh, Vervier in Belgium was one of the hot spots in all of Europe for hundreds of years for high-quality wool mm -hmm. because they had a certain river, I can't remember the name of it, um, that I guess was, was very soft water. Mm -hmm. It had very little lime, so I guess that would create an incredibly high-quality wool. Um, so I just thought, wow, I would love to learn about like historical wool production in the winter. Yeah. I wear, you know, we heat with firewood. I wear all wool yeah. from long underwear to pants, shirt, coat, beanie, everything is yeah. wool. <laughs> so I'm like, I got, I got to learn about the process. Mm -hmm. So I would love to just let you go on, on what is like a historical wool processing, whatever. And what time period is the one you've worked in or know the most about? So, we kind of focus more on, it kind of spans from the 
1600s to the 1800s okay. because we our English farm is is probably one of the earlier sites that we have at the museum. Um, and then we we do a lot of wool processing there, but we also focus on it quite a bit at our 1820s American farm. And uh, one of the big things, of course, with England is they're going to be one of the biggest wool producers, you know, in the world, particularly mm. when we're talking about during the colonial period. Um, so. And we're representing a yeoman farmer and his family at that particular household. So, what is, what is yeoman? A yeoman is someone that is kind of in between, wouldn't be a part of the aristocracy and wouldn't necessarily be considered at the level of like a peasant. They're somewhere in between. They're still doing fairly well mm. for themselves. They, you know, own a, a fair amount of, of acreage and they have, you know, the, at least the means to have enough space to, you know, grow crops, have lots of livestock and, and make a good amount of, of money for themselves. Mm. Um, so in, in the case of like the family that we represent at the museum, um, they probably would have, you know, quite a few sheep, lots of milk cows be producing, uh, you know, lots of different things in their gardens. And they're more than likely going to be, you know, having their sheep sheared and then sending it off to be processed further. Okay. okay. Yeah. For us, though, since it's just us, we we do all the processing there ourselves. We we explain to people though that more than likely that that particular farmer isn't doing all of the steps. Okay, even yeah. back in 1600s, you would probably only be doing a few of the steps and send it on down the the chain of probably production. so. Yeah, because especially for someone of of that level, um, there, you still have you know people that are in in various levels of production. So. Say after you have gotten all of your sheep sheared, uh, you would send the wool on to someone who's going to be washing it, which historically, um, at least for the, the 1600s, you see uh, ammonia being used for that, which is generally coming from stale urine. <laughs> Yeah, and it works. It, it's pretty effective. Uh, from what I understand, we've never actually used it. Uh, some of our interpreters who are really hardcore and have been doing living history for a long time actually have done that, and they said that it works phenomenal, phenomenally. <laughs> I've got um, something to say on this. Sure, yeah. Okay, so this blew me away. I would be blown away, but I've already heard about yes, this. Otherwise, yeah. I would be blown away. Yeah. So in preparation for today, uh -huh. I saw my 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 aunt, my mom's sister is from Belgium, mm -hmm. um, this past weekend. And I said, Hey, I'm going to do a podcast on wool. Do you know anything about great grandfather? Um, she said when she grew up, this is my aunt in, um, in Verviers in Belgium that when she was a little girl, so I guess this would probably be the forties or fifties mm -hmm. that there would be a man who would be walking the streets during the, um, in the morning who in Wallonian French would be calling out and people would come out of their their houses with their bedpans mm -hmm. and pour their urine into like a some kind of barrel that he's like pushing a cart on, yep. and that was to take them to the to the wool factory. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. It's like they they empty their chamber pots, and that's what that's what they use. So, so. what is the urine doing? Is it pulling? What what is it? How is it cleaning it? What is it doing? I'm not really sure how it works on like a. I guess a, a, a chemical kind of level, but at least in using like we've we've just bought uh, like bottled ammonia uh, to even just clean some of the shears that we've used before, and 
it just it just eats through the lanolin. So oh, the oil, yeah, the okay. the grease okay. that the the sheep produces um, can sometimes, you know, for one, if if say if you're using electric clippers, which we don't use, mm. we use hand shears, um, it can really gum up all mm. of the the blades, and they can overheat, and then it becomes a problem. So if you clean them, uh, clean that off, it it really just kind of dissolves that grease. Same thing for when you're going to be preparing that wool for spinning. If it's got too much lanolin in it, it's just not going to draft or like pull into uh, where the fibers are open enough where they don't get all tangled and and matted. So that ammonia uh, helps to break that down so it's a little bit of a smoother process. Mm. So first there's the shearing. Mm -hmm. So that would have been with some kind of like cast iron so they could be they probably be forged um so even like the the shears that we use are um they're based on they're called bergen and ball shears which have been a company that's been around in england since at least the 18th century and the the design of the shears really hasn't changed since like time of the Romans. Like Mm. it's, it's been around for a very long time. So it's just a single piece of metal, um, that is, is formed into these shears. It kind of has like a spring quality to it. Yeah. It's got a springy quality to it. So that way it's a lot easier on your hands too. Um, but once you've, you've sheared the sheep, uh, there is a step kind of in between shearing and washing, um, because you want to skirt the wool, Mm. which is where, you know, if you lay your fleece out, there's inevitably going to be some areas of that fleece that are less desirable. Mm. So the area around the rear end of the sheep, for example, mm. it's usually got a lot of manure and dirt and everything that's that's kind of embedded in it. And there are certain parts of that fleece that are like that, that no matter what you do, how much washing you do, it's not going to get it out. So you just kind of remove those areas okay. before you even start. Now, yeah. what back in... Back when, you know, back in the, back in the day, people would have just made use of absolutely everything because you, by necessity of survival of life, right? right? (laughs) Was there any use for some of these scrap pieces? Would they have been, is there anything they would have done without it? You just throw it on your like midden pile or something? I mean, probably now there are some people that will use, now I I can't speak for the the historical accuracy Mm. of this part, but I know at least in in the present day, there are some people that will like mulch their gardens Mm. or like kind of use, use pieces of wool to, to mulch and keep the weeds and stuff down. And maybe the extra manure might have a a more fertile quality about it. It's hard to say. Um, but I'm, I'm not entirely certain what they would use it for at least in the past. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So, okay. So you sheared it, Mm -hmm. then you separate, you pull out the bad clumps. Mm -hmm. And so then is the washing. Well, so sorry, there's another part too that in between. So after you've skirted it, sometimes the, or the wool would be sorted too, Mm. just depending on like what part of the, the sheep it came from. Mm. So, um, like some, some part parts of the wool, like the either the neck wool or like the side parts of the wool, might be more desirable than others. So, and it also depends on like the length of the fibers too. So you don't want to have really short fibers in with longer fibers because they won't spin up quite as consistently. So you want to try to divide those up as best you can before it gets sent to uh, a further level of production. Okay. <laughs> And then is washing? Yes, then it's washing. Uh-huh. Okay. 
And is the washing to get some of those oils out? Like, what is the washing? Is it just to get the washing pieces is, of dirt out of it and it's, stuff? It's the dirt, and then it's it's mostly the the lanolin because, like I said, that that after you've sheared sheep all day, your your hands feel great because mm. uh, it all of that all those oils get into the fibers of your skin and make it really soft, um, but. It's like I said, it's not very easy to spin with really greasy wool. So you have to remove at least the majority of that lanolin out of there. Now, were people in in those time periods, 16, 17, 1800s, were they doing something with the lanolin? I'm pretty sure they were. Once again, I don't I don't know quite as much about that. Okay. That's something that I've in recent years I have kind of looked into how you would extract it because from what I understand and I could be wrong there might be some exceptions to this but from what I understand if you're trying to extract lanolin you probably have to sacrifice wool to do that because you have to boil the wool to get the lanolin to sort of come to the top like if you if you had it in a, a kettle or something and you just continuously boiled it the lanolin would sort of sit on top kind of like fat Wow. Um, okay. And then you can skim it off. But by boiling it, it kind of ruins the wool for anything fiber production related. So this is a to- so that would have been a totally different process. So that would have been a yeah. different thing, right? A different and operation. You probably would use maybe not the best quality wool to try okay. to extract lanolin. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what happens after you wash it? So after you've washed it, um, and of course it dries. There's different things that kind of different directions it can go in depending on what it's kind of destined to be. (laughs) So uh, usually it's going to be either carded or combed. So historically you would have distinct professions Mm. where people are going to be wool carters, wool combers. um, And the carding process is usually if you're going to be making a, a woolen textile, which just means that when you're spinning it, um, the fibers, I should have brought cards with me, but when you're carding something, the, it kind of makes the fibers into almost like a spiral. It's very uh, lofty. It's very soft. It's got a lot of air in it. So when you're spinning, it creates a yarn that's much more bouncy and it's it's warm. Like if you were going to make a, a hat or a scarf or gloves, that's the type of, of prepared yarn that you would want for something like that. Combed yarn is more so if you want a worsted prepared yarn. So if, if you've heard of like, you know, a worsted wool suit or something like that, hmm. usually that produces a yarn that's more compact and it's not going to be as as bouncy and fluffy and warm as woolen yarn, but it is something that is going to maybe even keep you a little cooler. Wool has insulating properties both to keep you warm and to keep you oh, cool. Oh, really? I had no idea. Yeah. So it's it's a little bit better and it's it's a lighter weight kind of wool that that produces. So I've looked in preparation for today. I just, I love looking at I love looking at the details and old paintings and old photographs. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, looking at a whole bunch of old paintings, there are beautiful ones of women with, uh, like two, what look today, I guess you would say, look like a ping pong, uh-huh. uh, paddle. Yeah. Like two of those that are square shaped yeah. that seem to have like needles on them. Yeah. Those th- are the that's cards. That's the carding. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you're just back and forth kind of pulling mm-hmm. the fibers. Yeah. So you, you would take, uh, 
at least a, a small handful of wool, and then you would load up one of the cards. And the whole purpose of carding um, is to sort of uh, get out any little neps, or which are just like little tangles and things mm. in it. Also, it doesn't work quite as well. Combs do a little better job, but you can also remove second cuts, which are areas where when the sheep has been sheared, if the shearer isn't always super careful, you end up with short pieces that you don't want in your finished prepared wool before you spin. Because if you have a tiny little piece in there, that can end up being a little a little blob in your yarn mm. that you don't want. And if you want it to be nice and consistent, you want all your fibers to be as close to the same length as possible. So there's a real, it's not just getting it off the the sheep and without hurting it too much. It's like there's a really an art to yes, how you cut it. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. And I didn't, didn't even cross my mind. Yeah. And that's something that I've, I've been shearing sheep, I guess, since I started working at the museum. And I am by no means a professional or perfect shearer. I, I really enjoy it, but I, I try to be really conscious of, of not doing that. And I probably still do, but I, especially because I spin it, I want to be a better shearer mm -hmm. <laughs> in the, during the whole process. So. Now in some of the old paintings I looked at, you could see there would be like an old, old farmer, old shepherd, uh, sitting there shearing, mm -hmm. the feet would be tied mm -hmm. on the lamp. Do you guys do that? Or you just hold it down or how do you, get yeah. it without it kicking you and so um usually the the best thing you can do is is pin the sheep up ahead of time like get them in a smaller space where they can't run away from you um but usually what we end up doing is uh we'll we'll grab the sheep and basically sit it on its rear end mm. and there's there's lots of different methods of shearing um you know and, and it's also kind of based on what the individual shearer is capable of. Like for us at the museum, since we're not doing this all during the year and, you know, hundreds or thousands of times, like say a shearer in Australia or New Zealand might be doing, um, we, we just kind of do what we can with what the, what the sheep allows us to do and what we're strong enough to do. But usually we'll sit them on their rears and then we'll, we'll start, uh, around their, around their head and their neck. We want to get everything away from their eyes because one of the breeds of wool that we have, or one of the breeds of sheep we have at the museum are Cotswold sheep, which are a heritage breed from England. They're a long wool breed of sheep, which means that when they're in full fleece, they have these very long ringlets uh, around their, their eyes and around their faces. So if we don't trim that, they can become what's called wool, or wool, wool blind. Yeah. Like they can't see very well, <laughs> but they do look like dreads totally. <laughs> so it goes from like the, the Hasids in New York city yeah. with the Orthodox Jews yeah. with the uh, curls around their sides, turns those into, into dreadlocks. Yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> yes. And they, and sometimes they have so much of it that, yeah, the poor things, they just can't see. So we get rid of that first and then we work our way usually uh, to clear the belly. And then sometimes we just have to kind of roll them over on their side to get the, get the rest of them. But it usually takes us about maybe 45 minutes to an hour, but also bear in mind that per we, sheep, per sheep. Yeah. But we also usually have an audience for that oh, too. Yeah, you're talking. Yeah. And we're answering questions and, and, you know, dealing with other things besides just shearing the sheep. Now, one painting I was looking at has a young woman with uh, a woven basket mm -hmm. filled with wool and she's got a long stick 
and it says like wool picking or something. What is that? Is that just cleaning up after you've sheared? Yeah. So, so picking it is, is really, that's probably the, the most immediate thing that you would do after, after shearing, really after the, the skirting and sorting process is once you've got all of your individual kind of sections of wool, you'd want to go in and pick out any, what you might refer to as vegetable matter, or a lot of people in the fiber world just call it VM. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, pieces of hay, pieces of straw, anything that you can see, and it's easy for you to just pick it out that will make your life easier. Mm. Uh, Farther down the process, that's what you you want to take out in the picking process. Okay. Okay. Okay, cool. So where are we at? We're up to... um, we were up to the combing mm-hmm. and the, what was the other word? Uh, ca- carding. Carding. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, okay. What happened after that? So after it's uh, combed and carded, or I was going to mention too, that another thing that's really important with the carding process is if you have a longer wool uh, sheep, like the Cotswolds, for example, mm-hmm. car- or combing it is generally kind of the better way to go with preparing it just because if you're carding and you have... Uh, fiber that's got a staple length, which is just, you know, how long an individual fiber would be. If you've got something over probably four or five inches, it's really difficult to get all of those fibers uh, to cooperate on the cards. Mm. So combing allows you to kind of uh, get through those longer fibers easier. And it it does remove some of those second cuts a little bit better too. Mm. So once you have uh, all of your combed and or carded pieces of fiber, then you can move on to the spinning process, which there's lots of different ways of going about that too. Um, what I brought with me today was actually a drop spindle, which is a really, really, you know, old way of, of spinning. It's very portable. Um, you know, you, you would be able to be out there with your sheep and have your drop spindle and your distaff and just kind of spin along as you go. Um, So cool. Yeah, but you also can use uh, a variety of different types of spinning wheels to do that too. So that this part now, so this is taking the clean raw material and turning it into the thread. Right. Mm -hmm. Is what the spinning process. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I honestly, it's almost embarrassing, but you know, obviously I know what a, a spinning wheel is. It's beautiful. Only like this last weekend was I like, oh, that that's what you do with it. Yeah. Like you make the the yarn or whatever. Right. whatever the, is that the right term? Is yeah, yarn? it's okay. yarn. I mean, or you could call it thread. Just depends on how thin or thick it is. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yarn just is thicker. Yeah. And I would say like if you were processing, say, flax to turn it into linen, I would almost call that more thread than yarn because okay. it is generally so fine. Um, but in this case, yarn works just fine. Okay. So you sit there make creating the thread Mm -hmm. and then, so that, so it's taking all the stuff you've pulled and it's just tightening it into Mm -hmm. the thread. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, oh, I was just going to say the, the wool has like, if you were to look at wool under a microscope, um, it has tiny little barbs on it mm. that sort of grab onto other pieces, other fibers. So that's what's happening when you're spinning. You, you're putting the twist into the fiber, whether that's on your drop spindle or whatever spindle you're using with a spinning wheel. And while that's introducing the twist, you are you know, holding on to your, your fiber source <laughs> and you want to have what's called a drafting triangle, which is where... 
you have the the loose bits of fibers kind of funneling into that twist and it's turning into the yarn. Hmm. So you can kind of watch it. <laughs> so cool. Go up into your fiber. It's really cool. So <clears throat> cool. Then what? Uh, so once you've spun it, uh, it depends, once again, depends on what you're going to do with it. So once you have gotten, you know, however much yarn that you wanted to spin, you could either ply it where you're just, you know, doubling it up or sometimes tripling it with another strand of yarn to make it a bit stronger. Okay. Um, or if you wanted to leave it as singles, you know, depending on what you're making, you could do that too. But the next step after you're spinning is generally uh, washing it again. Mm. So that just kind of helps to set the twist in it so it doesn't unwind itself. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then are you, would you be dying? Now? Yeah, you could you definitely would be dying. Now some, you could have some, uh, fiber that's, you know, the, the phrase died in the wool. Like it's oh. literally just dying the fiber before it's spun. Um, but then you could certainly dye skeins of yarn after they're spun too. Wait, what does that phrase mean? Basically like you're, you're just dying. But what does it mean when you say it as an expression? Uh, I, I feel like it's it's almost like a Damn. insinuating authenticity. Okay, like okay. something is 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 real. It's like it's it's real dyed in the wool. Like that's oh, usually how yes, I've heard it. Yes. Yeah, that's, so that is something I love when that comes up in the podcast. I just yeah. mentioned the last one with the mining mm -hmm. because uh, the term a canary in the coal mine, yeah, you know, uh -huh. cautionary phrase, right? Or I said on the last one. I love just seeing where the origin of these phrases come right. from. Like when you say, oh man, you're like, no, 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 you're barking up the wrong tree. Right. That's a hunting dog yeah. phrase. Uh -huh. I just love that. Yeah. So dyed in the wool, that's yeah. where it comes from. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that just means you would have dyed it before creating right. the the, the uh, yarn or thread. Yeah. The yarn. Mm -hmm. Okay. And well, let's talk about dyeing a bit because sure. you've posted a bunch of Instagrams where you've done mm -hmm. dyeing. A yeah. lot of the listeners, a lot of people have hired me in the, when I first started my illustration career mm -hmm. are herbalists. Yeah. A lot of them are doing um, plant dyes. Uh, that stuff is so neat. Yeah. So what are some, you know, in the time periods we're talking about, either back in the old world or in colonial America, mm -hmm. what were some of the plants or, or something else that yeah. people were using to create colors? So historically, and we, we try to use as many more authentic, like historical dyes as we can at the museum. Um, we don't, we're not always able to grow like dye plants and things that, right. that we would like to plant because sometimes they just don't do as well, uh, you know, in our gardens or in our climate. But things like uh, woad, um, which mm, is, which mm -hmm. produces a, a really pretty blue color. Weld, I think is, I want to say it's a yellow color. I could be wrong, but woad and weld are definitely. Now, woad grows back in the United Kingdom. Right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So I did an episode with a deer stalker in the Scottish Highlands. She talked oh, cool. about woad because supposedly the, you know, the ancient fearsome picked people, the tattooed yeah, people yeah. would paint themselves blue with right. the woad. Yeah. Yeah. So goddamn cool. Yes, it's very cool. <laughs> yeah. So there's we we definitely use woad, we use weld, um, we'll use indigo as well. Mm. Um, and also uh cochineal, which are are you familiar with no. cochineal? So cochineal comes from a beetle, uh, I think in South or Central America, that it sheds like the female, the female beetle sheds its exoskeleton, and there's something about the exoskeleton where it's like if you crush it and you add add water it creates this really bright like magenta color. 
Wow. Um, or, or like a, a really pretty red color. So we use cochineal dye. Um, we use. So wait. Yeah. So where? So in colonial America, were they just bringing that from? You know, was this just part of trade, world trade? I yeah, it, it was part of kind of the world trade sort of system, but it wasn't something that. I guess you you would still have to be fairly wealthy to be able okay. to afford something like that. Okay. But yeah, it was accessible to to people that you know had the had the means to use it. I think in yeah. one of the alcohol, one of the spirits, um, the red one. What is it called? Uh, the one you put in. Um, uh, I used to love it in my in my drinking days. Um, there's a drink. Damn it. <laughs> well, there's a red liqueur. Okay. Um, that I think originally, up until recently, was colored from crushed beetles. I oh, wonder if it's that, that it, one. It could Car- be. Come, come, part, come. What's the drink that it's in? It's in a Negroni. Okay. It's the red that's the red liqueur that's in the Negroni. It's, okay. Uh, damn it, I can't. Yeah, remember. I'm, not, I'm not sure what it's called, but okay. it very well could be the okay. same the same insect. <laughs> that so they let's use hear some that. more colors. Um, Matter is another one. It's a, from a root that creates huh. like a kind of an orangey red color too. Um, all of those are kind of the the sort of standard dyes that we try to interpret as far as like things that people are definitely using in the past. We do experiment with some natural dyes too, which honestly on that end is what I'm more familiar with. I haven't gotten the chance to actually do dyeing with the ones I just mentioned, but I have experimented with, with natural dyes to mm-hmm. some extent too. Like what? Like I have used black walnut. So cool. Um, I've, we've done that too. Yeah, we've, I, and this is, I'll say this again too. I am, I am a hobby jumper. I love just learning new things. <laughs> and even if I spend a little bit of time on it, I will circle back to it eventually. Like I don't just give up on things completely. I have a very wide array of things that I'm interested in and natural dyeing is one of them. So most recently, uh, I've tried, I've tried black walnut. I have tried, um, goldenrod and mm. marigolds. I saw your picture of that. Yeah. That yellow is, is stupefying. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like saffron or crazy something. how bright it, cur- like that's the one that I have probably the most success with like it. Cause it's, it's something that tends to be fairly color fast too. One. What does that mean? That it holds the color? Yeah, that it, that it actually holds on to the color. Okay. And of course with dyeing too, it's, it's a little bit, you know, more to it than just dunking your yarn in, into the dye. Like you, you generally should mordant your, your yarn too, which just means you can use different materials to do that. Like, uh, you can use salt or alum to do that. Um, sometimes you can even use, uh, even sometimes you can even use the just tannins that are naturally existing in mm. certain plants. Like from for the walnut dye, you wouldn't have to do an additional mordant because it already has so many of those tannins in it that it generally bites on to whatever you're dyeing pretty easily. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I heard people talk about like uh, rusty nails and yeah, stuff. Yeah, you can do that. Okay. Yeah, I actually, um, was it two years ago or so, I made a couple different batches where I had, uh, I had, an alum, um, an alum kind of jar <laughs> that I used as a mordant. And then I took some, uh, old nails from the forge and I just stuck them in some vinegar and water and just let them sit. And I used that as a mordant too. So cool. What yeah. is, what is alum? Alum is. Is that a mineral or I, some ground yeah, up rock or what the hell is that? It's 
I, it's definitely some type of <laughs> mineral. I'm not entirely okay. sure like where it, where it comes from, um, but you can also use it for hide tanning too. Yeah. So yeah. When, so I've done a bit of trapping and I've yeah. done some hide um, you know hide preparation, but mm -hmm. I've never done really my own tanning. Right. When I send mine to a tannery, that's the tannery does the alum yeah. process, mm -hmm. which supposedly is reasonably environmentally friendly and mm -hmm. ancient. Supposedly yeah. ancient Romans were using right. the alum process. Yeah, it's it's really old and it's probably what you would see probably 18th century, at least colonial people. Okay. If they're if you're having that sort of process being done for hide tanning, they're probably gonna be using alum. Whereas the yeah. Native Americans would have done brain tanning yes. or, or bark tanning. Yes. Or, okay. Mm -hmm. And bark tanning is also kind of tends to be kind of more of a European method. Um, but the bark tanning. Yeah, the bark ah. tanning. Um, but brain tanning is definitely something that you see native people doing all over the place. Mm. So yeah. Fascinating, fascinating. So okay, we were up to like the bright, bright, bright yellow from the marigold mm -hmm. and the goldenrod. Mm -hmm. Are there any other things you've messed with that you really liked? There's okay, so this is one that is is always kind of frustrating to me, but Maybe one day I will get it to work. I want to use pokeberry. Mm. I've tried it a couple times, but it's a very fugitive dye, which just means that it, it unless you're doing some magic to make it work, it's like it just doesn't want to stick. It'll mm. wash out really easily. Mm. Um, but actually, I remember... I was talking to to Ann Stanley, who yes, you've yes. talked about, who you podcast. talked before. Yeah, um, I was talking with them about it before before Pyramid changed over mm -hmm. ownership, and they were saying that they were dying um, coyote bones mm -hmm. using pokeberry, and I think they were saying that they used <sighs> vinegar. Like it was mm. it was some sort of mixture that was like perfect and it actually permeated the bones and it dyed them and i wanted to try that but it just hasn't turned out the way it wanted to <laughs> so, okay yeah on yeah. talked about that on the podcast i think um reddening of the bones yeah. is the phrase or something like that yeah I think it's a, like a folk magic kind of thing yeah it's so cool yeah um so yeah and i know from a bunch of herbalists they've done inks with the pokeberry yeah. mm -hmm. um but yeah, black walnut's cool. We've dyed some pillowcases with black walnut. I expected it to be on to be a real almost black, but mm -hmm. funnily enough, on fabrics it came out just as like a coffee brown. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't expect that. And then I've also made an ink. I after dying, I then reduced it so it's super thick, and I've messed around with it as an ink. Oh, cool. And again, it's like yeah. a very dark brown unless yeah. you really pull it up, and then it'll be kind of black. Right. Um, I'm sure they must have mixed it with some kind of gum or something to make it a little thicker. Probably so, yeah, because it's a little watery. Otherwise, it would be kind of runny, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, uh, any other uh, dyes to mention, or should we keep going on the wool process? I think that's most of what I've messed, wor cool. messed with, but I'm we'll probably end up trying more stuff this summer. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. So, so after, so after, after it's been dyed or after the, um, creating, getting it on the spindles, mm -hmm. so it's called the spindles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then what would happen? So now you just have the, the, you have the material to make something, mm -hmm. but then what? Then you would, put it through a loom yeah so it once again um i feel like i just keep keep saying this but yeah whatever it's going to turn into just sort There's of depends on what on you're process. doing so i mean if, once it's been dyed uh you know and dried off you could use it for 
any variety of, of textiles, you know, whether you're you're knitting it, if it's a smaller kind of project, or if you're making a, a much bigger piece of fabric that's going to be used for lots of other things, you would could weave it on a loom. What mm -hmm. sorts of things would people be making in that time period? Just everything from a bed coverings to your pants and shirts oh, and yeah. dresses. And yeah, and and there's there's kind of different different fabrics used for different things. Um, you know, depending on what type of clothing you're going to be wearing. Um, there's a, a material that we've made, I'm pretty sure, several times at the museum. It's called Lindsay Woolsey, uh, which is a basically a, a half half linen, half wool hmm. piece of fabric. So it's like your your warp is one thing and then your weft, the, the other other strands coming down uh, is, a, is a different thing. So that's kind of a lighter weight sort of material um, that would be used historically too. Um, <clears throat> slight bit of a tangent. Sure. <laughs> because I wear so much wool in the winter, mm -hmm. I've been wondering, well, what would people have been wearing in the summer? Mm -hmm. You're kind of mentioning it. What would you have been, what would your pants, what would a man's pants and shirt be made out of in the 16, 17, 1800s? for your summer clothes so it probably would still be a combination of of linen and wool okay, and and okay. like i was kind of mentioning earlier with with worsted weight wool and and worsted right. types of fabrics it's lighter weight um it's not going to be as as heavy and and too much of a burden to have to wear in the summertime. So, you know, for us here in virginia and of course <sighs> with the climate doing what it's doing over time this is obviously very different temperature wise than what you would see in, in Northern Ireland or England in say 1650 or 1700. That's, that's just a fact. Um, so we sometimes have to, to kind of compromise a little bit with what we're wearing just so we can keep our staff comfortable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we probably end up wearing a lot more linen, um, than maybe people in, in the past in those actual locations would be. But we still wear wool too, um, and that's that's another thing that uh, you know my supervisor talks about. He's he's been doing a lot of military programming um, for 18th century different sites uh, for most of his interpretive career, and he says that it's really a matter of kind of getting used to it too. It's mm. like we're so most of us are not used to wearing that type of clothing as you know, people in 2023. Mm. Um, but if you kind of gradually get into it, it becomes a little bit more tolerable. Yeah, of course, you get too. used to it. Yeah. Yeah, I used to try to, in New York, I used to try to wear suits during the summer. And yeah. boy, that yeah. is rough when it's like 95 degrees. Yes. <laughs> um, so um, did we kind of get through the whole wool process or is there something that, That's I mean, we've gotten up to the creating of fabrics, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of the, from start to finish, okay. like from, from sheep to <laughs> finished thing, like that's in, you know, that's kind of the, the majority of the process. Yeah. Now one thing, so I definitely am hoping to get your boyfriend on the podcast yeah. because he, to do kind of everything we're doing today, but about blacksmithing. Yeah. One thing that's been cool for me to learn about is that it seems as though every little village, every little town would have had their local blacksmith mm -hmm. who would have been making kind of like odds and ends for everybody. Mm -hmm. Would your um, textile, would there, in every little town, would there be like the textile maker? Like the, would there be someone doing the spinning and all that in every single little town? So I'm not sure about- Or is that someone, something people are doing like on their homestead? Like what, where? So, so for the, say like the 18th century, um, whether we're talking about say in like Williamsburg or say a town in, in England or, or Northern Ireland, uh, 
you're going to have, you know, probably a, you probably have a tailor in your town mm. because that's that's one thing that's one misconception that a lot of people when they come to the museum they they think oh you had to make every single thing for yourself but even in those time periods you still have that division of labor and, and people in in that industry doing different jobs kind of like what i was talking about with you have people who are who are the wool carters the wool combers the ones who are doing those kind of more specific trades uh they might not be in each town, but you probably would see them working in some larger cities. Mm. Um, and then from there, whatever they're producing is becoming available, you know, beyond that. So if you were somebody that was living in, in a town um, and you were trying to get, you know, clothing, more than likely you're still going to go to a tailor and still have those things made for you, no matter what level of, of society really? that you're Interesting. in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was pretty, pretty common. Interesting. So even the lowest class, you would still be buying finished pieces mm -hmm. of clothing. Yes. And shoes and everything like that. Mm -hmm. So it's really like once you're in frontier life, you have to do everything on your own. Yeah. In that, in that sort of, in that sort of respect, yeah, you have to be in some ways a bit more self-sufficient and granted you're still bringing, bringing a lot of things mm. with you. But if you were somebody, say you were someone who was leaving um, Northern Ireland and then coming into Philadelphia because that's where most of those people are, mm. are settling initially when they come to the colonies. And then as they, you know, have land that's that's available in going down into the Shenandoah Valley and points southwest from there, um, they're settling on kind of the fringes of at least European society. Mm -hmm. And so as the farther you get out, the more things you're probably going to have to bring with you. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. <clears throat> um, so since we've gotten through wool, do you want to, is there more you want to get into a little bit? We don't have to do the whole process, but with the hides. Yeah. Yeah. So, we can talk about that. Definitely. Yeah. Let's hear a little bit about that. It's already been cool. Cause I was wondering just the differences between you've already kind of answered it, but just fascinating to know, obviously Europeans were, have been using hides for hundreds, thousands of years. Right. Um, so it's just fascinating to learn the differences. So the alum tanning, as opposed to the Native Americans here, we're probably all doing brain tanning. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, so in doing your own hides, what, you know, let's hear a little bit about it. So I guess I can start with how I even learned how to do this. Uh, I worked at uh, the Natural Bridge, which was literally like a mile or two from where I grew up. And for people who are not familiar with what the Natural Bridge, at least in Virginia, is, it's a big limestone arch um, that at least for as long as as white people have been here, it's kind of been an attraction. Like people have been drawn to it. And now it's a state park here in Virginia. But before it transitioned over to a, being a state park, there was a living history site that focused on the Monacan Indian Nation, which is the largest now federally recognized uh, community of Native people in Virginia. So I worked for uh, Monacan people were my supervisors and I worked with lots of Monacan folks and, and non-native folks down there for close to about 10 years. And I would definitely credit that experience with, with giving me a lot of the appreciation that I have for the natural world. Like I learned so much about, you know, different ways that things can be used and, 
brain tanning was one of those things where that I learned from a coworker there um, who actually wasn't one of the native interpreters, but it's, it's kind of become one of those things that lots of different people from all walks of life and different backgrounds have, have gotten interested in. So he was just one of those people that was really into, uh, you know, he, he made, he made arrowheads, he made, he built, you know, traditional structures, like that was kind of his bread and butter. So he taught me how to do that. Um, and the first time that I successfully tanned a hide, I will say that it's like, it's a lot of work. Like it's a ton of labor. Um, you're very, very sore <laughs> after doing it because there's so much manipulation of the hide that you have to do to get it to where it's, it's sufficiently soft. Because if you don't do it enough, it will be stiff and kind of uncomfortable and you can't really use it for, for at least if you're trying to make a piece of clothing or something that you're going to wear. So to go through the whole process, like if you were to have a fresh deer hide in this case, I've, I've mainly only tanned deer hides. I've, I've skinned some other critters, but I've only gone the whole process through deer hides. So generally if you're making buckskin, which is what, what most native people pre-contact with Europeans are going to be wearing for their moccasins, their clothing. Uh, it doesn't have hair on it. It's just, just the skin, just the leather. So you would scrape any remaining meat and fat off of the, off the hide. Uh, and then you would remove the hair as well. And there's, there's some other steps kind of in between that, that, uh, can make that process a little easier. I have soaked the hide in a mixture of, uh, ashes and water to basically make a lye solution that helps the hair to slip. So it'll cause the, the skin to sort of swell a little bit. And that makes the process of removing the hair a lot faster <laughs> and a lot easier. Um, but once you are just left with the leather, then you can move on to the actual brain tanning process. And the whole reason why they're using the brain in the first place is because it's, it's full of natural oils and fats that get into the skin and help to basically keep those fibers from binding up and turning into like a solid sheet again. So it keeps mm. those fibers moving, keeps them flexible, and it, it makes it a little bit more breathable too. So there are several parts of the process where you're wringing it out and soaking it where you can see little air bubbles coming through and it's it's partially porous, which makes it pretty comfortable to wear too. Um, so once you have soaked and wrung out that hide multiple times, <laughs> it depends on when it's to your satisfaction, then you can start drying the hide. But the catch with that is you can't just sit it on a rack and let it dry. You have to continue to manipulate that hide mm. over and over until it's completely dry. And that's probably the most labor intensive part. Definitely. There's no doubt getting in. So there's no doubt getting into any of these things, any of these hobbies, any of these historical things, the, the amount of work is so tremendous. Yeah. And in our modern society where every material good is kind of, you don't even care about any, everything's so easy to, to get mm -hmm. that you don't really put any thought into any material thing that just like today talking about a wool shirt that you might buy, right? like, oh my God, the amount of effort from growing 
you know, I guess raising the animals to all the process into your shirt or mm-hmm. whether it's a hide back in the day. Right. Yeah. I mean, one thing I, I've asked multiple people is how do you flesh? So after, so after you've skinned the animal, mm-hmm. I've done this with some trapping, you got to flesh it and mm-hmm. kind of put it up. There are different processes. Like you said, I've only done it the way that commercial trappers do it, where you just kind of dry it out. Mm-hmm. You get all the, the gristle and fat off, but that's where you stop. And then you send it out. You sell the hide like that, and then they send it to a tannery. But just the fleshing process, which means you have a giant knife and you're just kind of pulling off all the fat, all the gristle, which if you leave on there will rot the hide and the hair will slip. How do you do that without killing your back? <laughs> well, so there's there's a couple ways that you can do it. How I have done it most of the time is I use a fleshing beam. Yeah, with, I, but it still yeah. kills your back. But do you, So do you use, do you kind of have it to where it's it's like, I have like a fork in the ground and then it's about waist height for me. Okay. And then I use, it depends on the mood that I'm in, but sometimes I will use a bone scraper, like a really traditional kind of like bone scraper. So like a, like a deer shoulder blade or something? Or or? like a leg bone, usually like a femur. So cool. And you sharpened it yourself? Yeah. So you can like kind of carve out the, scoop out the side of it and make it to where it's got a little bit of an edge. Cool. And you can use that. Um, But I also have kind of a more contemporary, just, it's just like a a steel plane, you know, just for scraping too. But I don't know. It's just, I think I just push through it a lot of times and then I regret it later, but then I'm like, Oh, it's so soft. It's so great. And and, you know, having done these episodes recently about coal mining, it's just like people in the past, like when you look at old photographs, everyone looks so old. Um, it's just like all of the, just life was so intense on people's bodies. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, honestly, like I'm still like, I have issues with like pinch nerves Mm. and, and I, have like chronic tension in my shoulders and I guarantee you that mm. a lot of it has to do with the fact that I I really love doing stuff like Titanic. Sure. So, sure. Yeah. <laughs> um one thing that I thought might be really interesting to talk about mm-hmm. was um uh in one of your Instagram posts you've got a pic a picture of your hands bloody with two pig hearts and you said that you were part of some uh hog slaughter mm-hmm. that was like a really meaningful experience. I've also had like a very meaningful experience being part of like a homestead yeah. autumnal hog slaughter. I'd love to hear what you were getting at with that image. Sure. So um I have always I would always consider myself to be very much a softy when it comes to to animals. I've always loved animals. I have felt very much a lot of compassion for animals ever since I could remember. Um, but as I've gotten older and I've gotten more into those types of activities, whether it's hide tanning or, you know, even just being able to, to process, you know, animals after they have been killed, like that is fascinating to me because at least in my opinion, you're doing right by that animal to, to use as much of them as you can. Like you're, you're honoring that critter (laughs) by, by using as much, whether it's their hide, their meat, their bones, whatever, like that is the thing that you should be doing. You have a responsibility to do that. So I am someone that up until fairly recently, I hadn't really killed anything. Like I've, I've always been kind of interested in hunting. Um, but I've never been, I've gone with people who haven't been successful. And honestly, it probably wouldn't have been the best experience given some of the people that I was with at the time. But 
at least in, in recent history, when I've been around, whether we're butchering hogs or processing chickens or processing turkeys, I have been able to kind of see when it's done right. And that makes such a huge difference. So uh, it was for that particular instance that you were talking about, um, I was with my boyfriend's family and uh, some of their friends who live up on the same mountaintop that they do. Uh, they he, he was so so used to doing this process that he's just, he's so efficient and it's, it's so clean. It's so fast. And so he, he dispatched the pigs quickly. It's very fast, very humane. And the fact that we were able to just kind of like break these animals down, uh, as quickly and easily as we did. And then we're able to just literally fry up some we, we cooked some of that heart and cooked some of the we made sausage with them too and, and cooked it up and ate it within probably an hour or so of that pig dying. It was pretty profound because you just kind of have this sense of <laughs> you know something something did literally die for you to to consume it or you to have some sort of part in it. And I think in other sort of cases in my life, I've seen where it hasn't been done correctly, uh, at least in my opinion. And it was really refreshing to be able to see somebody honoring the animal and doing it in a way that seems right. Totally. So, yeah. Yeah. That, so my first, so at, when I took part in one, it was like a back, backyard homesteaders. Um, at that point I'd only killed a handful of squirrels mm -hmm. and even that was so intense. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm 30 years old. It's right. my first time killing anything. It's like squirrels are so soft and cute. And I know. Them. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I hadn't killed a deer yet, which I, um, but my friend Jamie Nudd, she actually is a podcast listener. We went to film school together up in New York. She invited me to, for her friends that were backyard homesteaders. And, uh, yeah, to me, it was just like, I felt like I w it was part of something so ancient, such yeah. a tribal experience because all these different families came from around the neighborhood and there was like 15, 20 people. It was two hogs and over the process of, I think it was actually like 14 or 15 hours. Wow. We had two of the living hogs and then they were completely processed into what must've been hundreds of pounds of sausages that yeah. were, that we tubed the sausages, pa packaged them in the plastic. And then, you know, at nighttime, everyone's going home with a few sausages. And it's just like, to see the, my first time really seeing that complete transformation mm -hmm. was very, very profound. Yeah. But one thing, you know, like you were saying, like at this point in my life, like you know, killing is like, I didn't even want to say the word killing. Mm -hmm. like even when I got into hunting, I didn't want to say I killed something. Cause you know, in the modern world, a killer is someone who gets locked up in jail. Right. So, um, you know, when I was about, got there early in the morning and saw the, the hogs getting dispatched, I was so nervous. Yeah. I was like, this is going to be an awful thing to see. You know, I've never seen anything being put down. And I want, just want to share this very weird, disturbing sure, experience. Yeah. So I thought when this young man shot the hog that, the sibling hog who we were also going to put down was going to go berserk. Right. Yeah. And I was like, this is going to be horrific. One of them is going to fall dead. The sibling is going to panic and go insane. What happened is so much more disturbing. Uh huh. This, the guy shoots the hog instantly, you know, point blank. It's instantly dead. The sibling hog walks over and starts drinking the blood yes. out of its sibling's head. Yeah. And I was like, oh, 
my god i was like so disturbed i almost hated the the, like i almost hated the pig for that i'm like how could you do that yeah (laughs) yeah no you're you're totally right because we i think we see it through the human world yeah, yeah we we kind of assign this perspective to animals that you know that that's not that's not how they think and and i've you know i've talked to to other people about this too in particular particularly with pigs i mean pigs are really intelligent um but when you're when you're butchering hogs it's like when that other pig is dead that other pig might as well think the other one's food i mean that's it's crazy i couldn't have been more shocked yeah i was like i cannot believe that's happening yeah um um yeah. So anyways, let's see. We got another 15 minutes. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, another thing I'll mention from that hog slaughter, this is also kind of disturbing, but you know, I like like the gothic and the macabre. Yeah. But uh, I, so they made me, they kind of gave me the ceremonial honor of do, once, you know, the hogs are dead. Um, you know, they lifted one, one of the big ones up with like a, you know, tractor type mm-hmm. thing. So, so now we were going to start skinning it. And they told me I had the honor of doing the throat slit. And I was like, oh, oh yeah. my God, this is so intense. Yeah. So, you know, I have the knife, I cut its throat and, you know, just this waterfall of mm-hmm. hot steaming blood is pouring out of its throat all over my hands. And I got the strangest like exhilaration mm-hmm. and it's that scared me. I was yeah. disturbed by this exhilaration that I felt. Right. I was like, what is that? Is that like ancient bloodlust? Yeah. <laughs> and only recently have I been thinking of, as I've gotten into like Celtic history, mm-hmm. um, thinking about our ancient European uh, ancestors who obviously would have been doing animal sacrifices, which then you obviously eat. Like right. that would be the beginning of a, fe- a feast. Right. And I'm like, is that what that feeling was? Like, was that the feeling of like the spirit of animal sacrifice before a tribal feast? Yeah. But that feeling really freaked me out because it was this overwhelming like rush right. as this waterfall of hot blood is pouring down my hands and arms, which is yeah. kind of a crazy thing to say publicly, but no, it was yeah, intense. Totally. Like I I haven't done I haven't done that. Um, because I remember when we were I remember when we were there, um, my partner's mom's, uh, his, her friend, uh, he was the one that was actually dispatching the hogs. Mm-hmm. And you could tell that like he had done this so often and he was so familiar with what he needed to do. It's like these pigs just came out. We had a little food for them just so it's like it's like a normal day. Like mm-hmm. you've had, you know, you've, you've lived your entire life this way and your last day is going to be exactly like that, too. And I feel like that's the way it really should be. It's less stress for them. Um, it's over and done quickly. But uh, my boyfriend he was the one that actually, you know, slit its throat. Mm. And he'd done it a couple times, but I think it's still kind of intense for him too because he's he's also oh, a softie. <laughs> but I've had the, a similar experience too when we were processing turkeys and chickens uh, at at his mom's farm. And that was the first time that I'd ever, I'd ever been up close and personal having to end an animal's life. And... I cried like it was I was upset I was sad I mean I felt I felt good about it afterward like I I feel like I'd sort of proven something to myself um but it's heavy but it's also like you were saying it's kind of this exhilarating thing too where you're like okay now we get to move on to the next step Mm. and I I had a part in this 
this big process that kind of scared me for the longest time. Yes, yeah. that's it. And I would even start having like little nightmares. Like it's scary. Tell me if you feel this. I have felt like, you know, through hunting. Now I've been hunting for six seasons. Mm-hmm. Now when I kill something, there's no, lo- there's very little of the, the feeling bad yeah. or sad. Mm-hmm. Now it's more of thankfulness. Like, yeah. thank you. You know, thank you, God, gods, you know, right. thank you, deer. Yeah. Like, wow, this is extraordinary. Yeah. Um, certainly with a deer, the bigger the animal, the more there is some of that, still some of that remorse. Right. But a lot of that has changed from the feeling, the overwhelming feelings of sorrow, stuff like that. What I have wondered for myself is was some of that like you're saying with the crying, is some of that like a loss of innocence? Because I felt like you're no longer, for me, getting into hunting at 30 years old, I lived in New York City at 29. I moved down here at 30. I was very much still a boy. Mm-hmm. And I felt like hunting was a manhood ritual. Yeah. And to me, the taking of the life was a loss of innocence. And it's like, well, you can never, you definitely can never go back. Yeah. And I felt like some of the overwhelming feelings of sorrow and stuff was like, getting past that loss of innocence. Do you feel some of that? Absolutely. And also I think it's because this is something that I, I, I've kind of come to later in my life too. Like you were saying, I was in my twenties, late twenties, at least before I even did anything like that because I had been really afraid of it or I felt like it wasn't the right time or just it, something didn't quite sit right with me until I finally had the opportunity to do it in a way that I felt comfortable with. And it's, it's, it was made more complicated, I guess, by the fact that I didn't grow up like this. Mm. Like even, even growing up in natural bridge, it's like I, I was raised mainly by my grandparents and my dad and none of them were hunters. (laughs) Um, and they also kind of had the same sort of view of like, they, they didn't like to, they didn't like the idea of, of, of killing an animal either. Now, a generation or so back, like my, my great grandmother, who I didn't get the chance to, to know very well. She was, uh, I was about four or five when she Mm. passed away. She was now in my, my 32 year old self, someone that I really look up to. And I wish that I'd have known better and been able to talk to because she kind of did everything. Mm. Like she, they had hogs when my grandmother was growing up, they had cows, they had chickens. She butchered those hogs. She milked those cows. She did all these things and because she had to, but it's like to be able to connect, to be able to connect with her in some way, is something that I wish that I could do, even though, you know, she's long since passed. Was that out so, here? That was in uh, Virginia. Yeah, that was in Virginia. Yeah. That was in Natural Bridge. Okay. Yeah. And do you, yeah. so do you feel that your interest with like the Frontier Museum is connecting to your great grandmother? I would think so. Yeah. I, I think that especially in the last probably five years or so, I I've kind of made a conscious effort to get a lot of her things. Like we still mm-hmm. have a lot of her things at, at my grandparents' house and I go out to visit them every so often. And just the last time I was out there was probably a week or two ago. And there's a, a drawer upstairs that has a lot of her, uh, aprons and things that she made. And my mama gave me, uh, basically gave me permission to like take some of them with me. And so I was, I live in an apartment, so I can't have but so much of a garden, but I planted myself a little garden, uh, a couple weekends ago. And I, 
consciously, I wore one of her aprons like while I was doing that because I felt like that was some way for me to kind of connect with her. So did you feel anything, anything strange or uncanny or synchron any synchronicities around? I wouldn't say anything strange, but I felt comfortable. Hmm. Like I felt like, I felt like what I was doing was, was make, I was still making some sort of connection there. Hmm. And uh, I know that when we were talking, you know, before we, we scheduled the interview and everything, you were asking me about like, if there were any sort of scary <laughs> experiences or spooky things. And I feel like at least in my friend group, I'm never someone that has scary stories. Like I, I just, I, I've never been someone, maybe I'm just not open to it or the supernatural has not been open to me. Who knows? But relating to my great grandmother, the only kind of supernatural experience that I would say that I had was I was probably under 10 and I remember I was in the side yard of my grandparents' house and I looked up to one of the upstairs windows and I remember it was the summertime and we had the windows open. So it was just like the screen of the window there. And I swear, like I saw my great grandmother's face there. And my grandparents too have mentioned several times that it's like they'll be in the house and it's like they see something out of the corner of their eye and it's like they're like that's ma because that's what we called her name we called her ma fainter that was her last name was fainter um so i don't know i and she's she's also like my namesake that's her mm. name was mary mm. um and i just feel like i don't know i feel like she's looking out for me sometimes oh I so it. yeah <laughs> oh, i think that's definitely real yeah um I think that's absolutely real. Yeah. Um, I've, yeah, I had, uh, back in my crazy days when I lived in New York, yeah. I, you know, getting drunk all the time. One, I didn't get too into drugs, thankfully, but there were a few <laughs> events, but there was one that was really, really a real bad night. But anyways, I think I was on the precipice of overdosing or worse. Mm -hmm. And, uh, as I was like collapsing, this is like once I've gotten to my apartment in a February night, mm -hmm. um, I was like passing out in the street, trying to get it to my house, probably overdosing from some substance <laughs> from some club. But right as I got in through the door of my house and I collapsed on the ground and felt like I was melting into the ground, I just felt all of a sudden my grandfather yeah. standing right there. I couldn't see it, but I just felt him standing there. And he was so ashamed of me. And wow. I felt so, uh, and I said, don't let me die. I've got films to make is yeah. what I said. At that point I was pursuing my filmmaking career. And then I woke, popped out, like woke up like five hours later. And I was like, oh my God, we're done with this BS. Yeah. <laughs> but I re but from then on, I've really, and then I've had dreams from my granddad has been in them. It's not just a dream. It's like, this is really the spirit or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I think that's fascinating. I mean, I a hundred percent believe your great grandmother was in that window. You yeah. Know? There's no doubt for me. Yeah. Well, this has been awesome. We have to wrap it up in, in four minutes with our library time here. Right. Do you want to say anything about, I don't know if you want to tell people your Instagram account or if you want to say any more about the frontier culture museum, if there's some events coming up or next year's wool thing, anything you want to say like that? Sure. Um, so yeah, uh, once again, my name is, is Mary Kate Clater. Uh, if you're interested in a lot of weird hobbies that, <laughs> that I'm also interested in, um, my, my Instagram is Mary Kate makes. Um, so I'm also, uh, I, 
I don't know. I don't know why I'm cautious when I say this. I'm also an artist. I do make art. Well, your I, your blood root block print print yeah. is awesome. <laughs> well, thank you. Is that a lino cut? Yeah, it's a yeah, lino cut. Yeah, that's awesome. You do yeah. a great job of that. Yeah, so I've I do I I feel like I I try to do a lot of uh, natural or more native flora and fauna inspired artwork too. So I usually post about that a lot on my Instagram when I'm working on it. And yeah, that's just kind of, I, I feel like all of that's really important. And I'm always kind of seeking out different subject matter for stuff like that. So I'll probably be out in the woods <laughs> the next chance I get to, to right see on. what I can find. And anything interesting happening at the Frontier Culture Museum that if someone's coming through the East Coast or anything like that, they should come to? I mean, uh, so I mentioned earlier, there's the, I mean, it's kind of close, but next this coming weekend, we have our Memorial Day events coming up. Um, and then as far as our Fiber Festival, which we did April 1st this year, we'll plan on doing it around the same time next year. Um, and for that, we, we've had a really good turnout for the first year. We had a lot of vendors. We had, uh, somebody there doing sheepdog demonstrations. Oh, cool. Uh, we've had, we, we want to ex- expand it more and include maybe some more folks that do living history and doing more traditional wool processing types of things too. We shear our sheep. Uh, we talk a lot about the heritage breeds that we have there cause they're not super common, you know, in this area anymore. Um, so yeah, we focus on all those things. Fascinating. And is <laughs> yeah. there anything in the fall that's happening there? Um, in the fall special events, we've got, well, we always, we always do an Oktoberfest sort of celebra- okay. celebration too, where we're highlighting of course our German farm, but it's also kind of a, a music and beer get together don't, too. Don't you guys grow the hops at yeah, your place? We do. So we actually brew beer at the museum so from the cool. hops that we grow. Yeah. What a cool museum. Yeah. What a special thing to have out here. By my trade and fell in love with a chambermaid. And if I could but her favor win, then I would weave and she should spin. My father scornfully to me said, How could you fancy a chambermaid when there are ladies both fine and gay, dressed like some goddess or queen of May? Oh, what care I for a lady gay had, but I my chambermaid, a chambermaid, although she be, blessed is the man that enjoyeth she. I slipped up to my love's chamber door, where oftimes I had been before, but I neither dare speak nor yet go in to that pleasant bed that my love lies in. How can you call it a pleasant bed Where no one is but a chambermaid A chambermaid, although she be Blessed is the man that enjoyeth she Oh, shall I go, love, or shall I stay Or shall I tarry till break of day With heavy sighs she to me said Why was I born to die a maid So I put my shuttle into her hand And bid her use it at her command She took it kindly and used it free So she learned to weave along with me And when that she had learned her trade Smiling unto me she said My loom is ready, you may begin Now you shall weave and I will spin 